Welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. Uh, I am joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm well. I'm happy to be talking about movies with friends. Strap in, folks, because I'm going to be ranting a bit during this controversies and controversy section. Uh, Joe Rogan is asking questions about vaccines, and Neil Young has decided Spotify doesn't need him around anyhow. Uh, the veteran rocker has removed his music from the platform in protest of Rogan's deal with the pop songs and pop podcast streamer. Uh, he has been joined by Joni Mitchell and E Street Band guitarist Nils Lofgren as part of this exodus. Um, as I wrote in the Washington Post last week, I feel kind of conflicted about this whole situation. Uh, on the one hand, it is actually an example of the system working, more or less. I mean, I think Neil Young has every right to decide where he wants his music played uh, and who he wants to affiliate with, even tangentially. Spotify has the right to choose Rogan over Young, uh, a move that almost certainly makes more sense for them economically, since Rogan likely does more streams in a week than Young does in a year. And consumers have the right to take their money elsewhere. If an artist they love leaves the platform out of a disagreement with one of the artists that they loathe on the platform. Yay, everybody wins. On the other hand, I find the whole thing mildly disturbing. It's kind of a microcosm for a whole world of problems that are increasingly complexly interwoven with each other. Uh, and I find it disturbing that an artist is calling for someone's speech to be restricted by their employer. It's not quote-unquote censorship. There's nothing to do with the First Amendment here, but it's obviously chilling uh, and in, it's intended to be. Um, I find the whole idea of boycotting somebody because you disagree with their politics or an aspect of their ideology to be disturbing and essential limitless. If Rogan should be boycotted for having people on his show who dispute the usefulness of vaccines, Young should be boycotted for arguing against the use of GMOs like golden rice that have saved and improved millions of lives. And Joni Mitchell should be boycotted for protesting nuclear power, uh, which has ensured that we re remain addicted to coal and other fossil fuels that contribute to childhood asthma, climate change, all sorts of stuff, right? Nils Lofgren is a perfect angel. Nobody should ever boycott <laughs> Nils Lofgren. Um, mostly, though, uh, I just hate, I hate I hate, I hate this idea that every dollar that we spend is tantamount to a political act. This notion that by subscribing to a Spotify to listen to Taylor Swift or Rihanna or, I, I don't know, Adele, that's a current popular music person, right? Um, you are explicitly supporting and agreeing with Joe Rogan uh, and his guests' opinions on vaccination. And I mean, look, I think some of these opinions are very, very dumb. I feel fairly confident saying that his opinion on this is a net negative for society. But lots of opinions I disagree with are net negative negative for society. Every opinion that disagrees with mine is a net negative for society. Let's just lay that out there. Uh, I don't care if the guy uh, at the Valvoline down the street has a MAGA hat on while he's changing the gas in my car. Uh, I just I just want to pay the $60 for my oil change. Wait, I don't care if that keeps food you pay somebody on his family's table. To get your gas changed? His oil changed. My oil changed. Pretty Did sure I say you gas? said gas in your car. Well, whatever. Uh, oil. I meant oil. Um, if I was in New Fancy. Jersey and I had to go to a gas station and have somebody put pump, pump my gas and they're wearing uh, Al Gore, Bill Clinton hat, right? What? Well, I, I don't. I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. The the problem with everything platforms like Spotify or Netflix or Amazon, lots of others, is that they make too many people, for lack of a better word, colleagues. As consumers, we demand everything be in one place for ease of access, and then we get angry when somebody we don't like. Is also in that place. It's baffling and contradictory and vaguely authoritarian in the sense that it implies that everything should be in that place and also that bad opinions should be expelled from that place, meaning that they shouldn't be allowed to exist at all. 
But maybe Rogan is an entirely different class of person, maybe because his podcast, as opposed to just his, you know, general political opinions or where this is happening, changes all of this. I don't know. Alyssa, you're the closest thing to an ethical consumer on the show. What am I missing here? I actually don't think you're missing that much. Um, And I have to admit, as someone who is, you know, has done some thinking in the direction of ethical consumption, but who generally favors what I've come to term sort of cultural offsets um, instead of boycotts or sort of taking your money elsewhere. Um, what this mostly made me feel was embarrassed for Neil Young and Joni Mitchell because sort of putting their cultural power up against Joe Rogan's in this moment is sort of the equivalent of running headlong into a brick wall on purpose, right? It's it is an attempt to assert some authority that they don't actually have that was sort of bound to fail. And that just ends up looking kind of embarrassing. I mean, tactically, to a certain extent, it looks like Joe Biden giving a big speech on voting rights when he knows he doesn't have the votes to get anything done and it's not going to work out. It's, you know, it's sort of a gesture at a constituency, but it doesn't actually produce any change for the better, right? I mean, like... Neil Young saying that Joe Rogan is bad is not going to get more Americans vaccinated. It's not going to get pediatric vaccines approved for kids faster. It's not going to, you know, it's not going to do any of the things that he wants it to do. And so ethical consumption, non-ethical consumption, as a matter of tactics, I don't, this doesn't work. It didn't do anything for the cause that Neil Young cares about. And it's just a huge tactical miscalculation, right? Like, the boomers who are, you know, streaming Neil Young and Joni Mitchell instead of like listening to them on their turntables um, are probably already vaccinated, right? Like the people who, and the specifically the people who care about like Neil Young and Joni Mitchell's politics are probably already vaccinated. <laughs> it just, you know, it's a futile and ultimately just sort of embarrassing gesture and it made me feel bad for them. Uh, Peter, we were we were discussing this a bit before the show, but there 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 are good reasons for artists to, to boycott Spotify. Like I think the pay rates for artists are abysmal and embarrassing, and should be should be increased. And there's a whole range of issues that t- tied to like ownership by the studios of Spotify. Like it it is it's a crazy web. But also audio quality, which is a thing that Neil Young cares about more than vaccines. I think I think he actually cares about like audio file types more than vaccines. That's another reason he wanted to leave. He's going places where there are better audio uh, qualities, right? Yeah, so I'm really not kidding when I say that this is, I think, as much about uh, streaming audio quality as it is about vaccines and vaccine misinformation. Because Neil Young is a diehard, lifelong audiophile, the kind of guy who has spent uh, the last couple of decades just obsessing over musical gear and musical playback. Um, back in the iPod days, he was actually the backer of a uh, a high-resolution digital audio player because uh, early iPods, if you recall, worked through the Apple Music Store where MP3s were typically only sold at 128K, a much lower quality than even Spotify uses today. And Neil Young has hated Spotify's audio quality for a long time and released a statement Uh, saying that he felt better after leaving Spotify because now no one would be listening to his music in low quality. And so he didn't like Spotify before all this blew up. 
and he still doesn't like Spotify. And I think I'm not saying that the vaccines are a non-issue for him, but I, I think in some ways they are kind of a pretext to leave a service that he already hated, that he was already frustrated by, that he only joined because he was initially frustrated that he wasn't getting paid uh, by Spotify because nobody could listen to his music. And then he then he joined and got paid by them. And now he's not going to get paid by them because he's cranky and old and an audiophile and audiophiles tend to be cranky old men like me. I, I share some of these tendencies and care a lot about streaming music quality. Um, though I do, I do have a, a Spotify premium subscription. Um, but the other thing, you know, Alyssa said, uh, that I thought was notable was this is tactically useless. If you want to get people vaccinated. I'm not sure Neil Young wanted to get people vaccinated. Maybe he thinks he does. But Neil Young wanted attention. And this got him an awful lot of attention. And I mean, the the Joe Rogan Spotify dust up made the front page of The Wall Street Journal, uh, The New York Times. This has been the subject of just a huge amounts of Twitter conversation. This is a big deal that has put Neil Young back in the news in a way that he hasn't been recently. And so the incentives for someone like Neil Young here are not to get people vaccinated and to do things that make sense from a from a let's convince people perspective. The incentives are for Neil Young to manipulate the discourse, right, in, so that people talk about Neil Young a lot more. And in fact, I saw people on Twitter saying, you know what, I'm really happy to be uh, listening to Neil Young on uh, on Apple Music right now, the, which does have lossless audio quality. Um, to be clear, Neil Young's favorite service, as far as I can tell, the one he has actually said is good, uh, uh, is the Amazon HD service. Um, but like... It, this seems like a this seems like Neil Young didn't like Spotify, was looking for a reason to leave, found one um, and found a, a reason to leave that that made him the center of attention in the process. And so, look, I, I like Neil Young's music and in many cases, not his more recent stuff. Um, and I even agree with him in a lot of ways about audio quality. And he as an artist should you know, has a right to not have his music on a platform for any reason, but especially because he thinks that they are providing a subpar version of it, right? Just like directors, you know, in some ways should have should have the right not to have their films shown in pan and scan, uh, though in many cases they didn't back in the pan and scan days. But um, but like they have a right to complain about that sort of thing. But I think this is all kind of silly, and I I also think that this is it's it's not not about vaccines at all. But it's it's like a weird personal thing with Neil Young in a lot of ways that has gotten tied up in our vaccine COVID lockdown uh, policy discourse because that's what people are talking about. And because a lot of people listen to Joe Rogan and care about what happens with to Joe Rogan. Well, I, I all right, let's 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 set aside the cynicism. Let's stop being cynical for a moment. Let's assume that Neil Young is being totally, totally genuine. Sorry, and this is are, the, this is the only reason. Not, if we're going to declare this a cynicism free zone, then I am <laughs> for, withdrawing. For 10 minutes. 10 minutes. 10 minutes. 10 minutes. Withdrawing Just 10 minutes. my, my no uh, contributions from this platform. <laughs> You're, you're you taking your talents to South Beach. You have to stay. Uh, it's in the First Amendment that you have to talk to me. Uh, the, <laughs> all right. So, so uh, let's let's assume let's assume that Neil Young's being the, the only reason he's doing this is has to do with vaccines and that he hates Joe Rogan so much that he that he doesn't want to be uh, associated with him even tangentially. All right. Let's let's assume all that. Um, I, I, my 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 
there there's an interesting subcurrent to this, which is that if your if your goal is to keep uh, Joe Rogan as as gated as possible and to keep his opinions as gated as possible, the best thing you could do for him for the world is to keep him locked up behind the Spotify paywall. The Verge had a very interesting piece, uh, I don't know, maybe six months ago, way, well before any of this started, about how uh, if you looked at Google trend res- results for the art, the the guests on Joe Rogan shows, they uh, were they were getting Googled much less now than they were before. Uh, he he went to Spotify. So if, if you know, back in the day when he was on YouTube and Apple and everything and everywhere else, if you went on Joe Rogan, tons and tons of people would be Googling you. Like, who is this person? What what have they written? What what music have they done? What movies have they made? And now that is not the case. That is, or it's less the case. It is he's still exceptionally popular. I mean, there's a reason that Spotify is paying him so much money to be on their platform exclusively. He still has a huge audience. He still does, you know, uh, 11 million. He has 11 million listeners a month or something. You know, it's like it's it's crazy, 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 crazy number. Um, but but like his reach is lessened, his influence is reduced, and by saying we want him away from us and out behind this out from behind this paywall, you could actually be making the world a worse place. Yeah, I mean, much better for Neil Young to like challenge Alex Berenson to fisticuffs or something. <laughs> Just, I would watch that. I mean, so I would watch I. that. I don't know. I mean, I like. I just find I, I, I again set aside all the other stuff. Like, I just find this whole. I find this whole attitude f- fairly vexing. I just don't. I don't like it. And like, part of I, I think this show is a good example of why I don't like it. I feel like people should be able to come together from across all sorts of perspectives and talk to each other and hash things out. And I just saying like, no, this guy has to shut up and go home and and get away from me is very, I don't care for it. So I think that's right. That if you, uh, that there's no action that Spotify could, could take that would reduce Joe Rogan's reach. If they kicked him off the platform entirely, uh, you know, maybe if they figured out some way to break his contract, which I seriously doubt would be possible, but let's assume that they did it, they could cost him some money, maybe. Um, Though, again, I think it's very unlikely those contracts tend to be pretty uh, ironclad and he's going to get his money um, uh, here. But there's no way for Spotify to reduce his reach. And as you said, Sonny, arguably, if they kicked him off the platform, it could increase his reach because he would just be back on the open web or on some other um, podcast platform. And there are so many of them. And at least one of them, if not quite a few of them, would continue to host him. Frankly, he could pay someone to set up a Joe Rogan specialty podcast platform, and it would do very, very, very well. But what I think people want is is a statement, is just to plant a marker from an organization like Spotify. They want to the, the the people who who support Neil Young here um, because they think that Rogan is dangerous aren't thinking about let's aren't actually thinking about like the end result in terms of Rogan's reach. What they're thinking about is we just need to have big institutions say we're against this. And Spotify is a big institution. It's the most popular streaming music service and a lot of people do get their music and their podcasts through it. And so if Spotify were to say, Joe Rogan, officially bad, then step two, question, question, question. Step three, better public health 
end of COVID. The, un- the underpants gnome theory of public health. Yes. Yeah. Right. Um, but that's but that's what they want because the, what they want is someone to it's not just someone to say it. They want a powerful institution to say the thing. It's like the Aaron Sorkin theory of politics. Is why aren't is you wearing what the ribbon? Matters is delivering a great speech and a quippy insult in real time so that the bad people can be told that they're bad and everybody can hear that they're bad. And th- this is what the protest music of the 60s and 70s has come to. Woohoo! This is our movement now. I mean, just watching Neil Young and Joni Mitchell be like subsumed into the internet of beefs is just, everything is so embarrassing and terrible and I hate it. I, Peter, I miss when we were arguing about Ted Cruz and uh, the the actor comedian guy with the beard. Seth Rogen. Seth, Seth Rogen. Rogen. Yeah. Oh man, those were the days. <laughs> <laughs> Way less dignified. Very good. Uh, the all right. What did you make, uh, Peter, of the of Joe Rogan's statement on Instagram? You you pinged us and you wanted to. Yeah. So I I would to, say that I am I I am not someone who has never ever listened to Joe Rogan, but I don't think I've ever listened to a full episode. I am not a regular listener of, to Joe Rogan. Don't have a strong opinion about him um, at all. But I thought that the statement that he released on Instagram, which is nine minutes of him just talking to the camera, really was kind of revealing about the appeal of Joe Rogan. So he talks about how surprised he is at the success of the show about how ad hoc it is in many ways about how that he doesn't do all that much research in some cases you know he sort of doesn't read the book before he has somebody on he's just a curious guy who wants to have some conversations he started having them with his friends it blew up then some other people wanted to participate he was like okay i'll have conversations with those people too he goes off on a rambling story in the middle of this about the time he was a bouncer at a neil young concert and the hoodie he wore and it's kind of a perfect example of like why of what joe rogan does well which is joe rogan is not he's not a super sophisticated intellectual guy but he's not a dummy either he's really just a a very earnest person who shares stories about himself uh asks Questions that other people won't ask because Joe Rogan is not afraid to ask the basic question because he he doesn't know himself and is just kind of curious about things. And that leads him into certain traps. But I think it also allows him to be to be real and to get at things uh, in conversations that other that other interviewers, that other journalists don't because they come at things from from a much more predetermined perspective because they 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 think well look I'm going to I'm going to write this or I'm going to talk about this in a way that I I've already consulted with the experts and I already know the conclusion I already know the answer and Joe Rogan doesn't start out knowing the answer he brings people onto his show to ask them questions because he genuinely wants to hear what they have to say and I thought the most interesting thing though that uh, about what he said was he he closed his statement with you know I've got some haters too but it's good to have haters. And it wasn't this like, oh, because they fire you up and put put anger in your soul kind of thing. It was, you know what, your haters- That's why I like haters. I know that's why you like haters, Sonny. But Joe Rogan was like, you know, my haters, sometimes, he basically was saying, sometimes they make good points and they'll help me, they'll help keep me honest. And so maybe I'm going to make some changes to the way I do my show now, including booking, say, people who might respond to uh, somebody who has outside of the mainstream views about about uh, vaccines or COVID policy immediately afterwards, um, including, you know, doing different kinds of research before I, I have some of these people on the show. And he actually seems to be learning from this experience and 
and willing to adjust his approach because he's not someone who is absolutely determined to sell only one message to his listeners. He's just someone who who wants to talk to a bunch of people and has found great, great success doing so. Yeah. Uh, all right. So what do we think? Are the demands that musicians and customers separate themselves from Spotify over Joe Rogan a controversy or a non-troversy? Uh, Peter? I mean, I think Spotify's low streaming quality uh, is obviously a controversy. As as for Neil Young and 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 vaccines, yeah, it's a controversy. It obviously is. Alyssa? Uh, controversy. Uh, I think it's a controversy, though. I, I again, I'm mostly I just find it depressing. Uh, if you enjoy the show, and who doesn't? It's great. Uh, please head over to atma.thebulwark.com, where we'll have a special bonus episode on Peter Dinklage's problem with Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. And now on to the main event. This week, we are reviewing A Hero, the Grand Prix winner at the 2021 Cannes Film Festival uh, from Iranian auteur Oscar Farhadi. Uh, I'm, and if I botch any uh, names here, I apologize. I am not. I do. Persian is not my first language. Uh, Farhadi's film is about an imprisoned debtor, uh, Rahim, who during a weekend furlough tries to sell some gold coins his, girl found, his girlfriend found in a lost bag in order to eliminate his debt and receive permission to leave jail. Uh, when he's informed by his creditor, that a half payment uh, plus a pl- payment plan plus security from his brother-in-law is not good enough, Rahim puts up notices about the lost bag, which is claimed by a woman, uh, and the gold within it is also claimed by her, and she promptly disappears from the film. When word of Rahim's good deed spreads, he becomes a cause celebre. He's, he's, there are news reports highlighting his honesty in the face of economic difficulty. The prison uh, holds him up as an example of you know good character in society. Charities come to his aid, raising money to secure his release and pressure his creditor, Bahram, from, uh, into letting him out of prison. Uh, but as whispers begin on social media and Bahram himself calls into question Rahim's timeline of events, it becomes clear to all that the hero has, in fact, been hiding some information from people. And we see this in the film. We actually see the the uh, story that he is telling evolve right in front of our eyes. We don't have to take anybody's word for it. We see it. Um, a hero reminded me a little bit of Parasite in that Farhadi has presented us with a protagonist we should nominally feel sorry for, but presents his story in such a way that his enemy uh, becomes much, much more sympathetic. Uh, I think Rahim's story begins with dishonesty, and while we might understand why he'd lie as he lies, the simple fact of the matter is that he is a liar in this in all of this he tells untruths and that is a, that's a problem when you are trying to hold yourself up as a good example the real victim in this whole situation is Baram who had to sell his daughter's dowry to keep Rahim out of trouble with loan sharks and who all he wants is to get his money back. I think that's not unreasonable. Um, But then again, maybe they're all just victims of a corrupt system. Peter, one thing that this movie really highlights is that uh, without lingering on it is the cruelty of a nation and a culture that denies debtors the opportunity to declare bankruptcy, right? Yeah. I I mean, as I texted you guys, I think in some ways this movie is just a two-hour commercial for the U.S. bankruptcy system, which allows the discharging of most interpersonal private debts without the threat of jail time. And there is, I think, there's one way to read this movie. Um, I'm not quite sure if I think it's intended and... um, you know, I'm I'm open to arguments to the contrary here, but I think there's one way to read this movie that is, uh, I don't know if I want to say subtle, but a, an, an unstated criticism 
of Iranian legal and social culture, because at every turn in this story, you see um, you see sort of the, the role of the uh, of debtors prisons. You eventually see somebody who is about to be hanged because of a debt that they had out uh, outstanding. Um, you well, and a murder. See, uh, there was there was a murder involved in that one. It wasn't just a wasn't just a debt. Um, you see, uh, you also see. The, the role of women, right? Um, this, uh, so many of these complications and these sort of problems that arise uh, arise in part because the role of women has to be um, kind of covered up, covered up in some way. They have to lie about it because women have these sort of uh, their expectations about who is going to be allowed to do what in Iranian society uh, in terms of gender roles. And so it, it's kind of interesting just just as a social and legal critique of Iranian culture, even though there's never a speech about, you know, how, look, if we only had, you know, UK style uh, bankruptcy system that has succeeded in the rest of the world, right? There's never a big speech about it. There's never an acknowledgement because everybody simply accepts that this is the world that they live in. And that's part of what makes the movie so powerful is that there's there's no there's no moment in which any of the characters step outside of the system that they are that they are participating in. They all accept it like we all do the systems that we live in in our own lives. And yet the movie allows you to see uh, some of the issues that arise from that system um, and some of the complications. And indeed, the, the, the story is just a pile up of complications from social uh, expectations and, and 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 customs and legal rules that are um, maybe not quite particular to uh, Iran, but that but that exist in Iran and that I think the movie wants us to understand are not necessarily uh, signs of a healthy society, even though everyone treats them as normal. Uh, Alyssa, I, I I got the sense that you were also a bit uh, frustrated with the protagonist of this film when we were when we were texting. Uh, yeah, um, Peter. You had texted us sort of joking that you were excited to discuss Iranian, a simple plan. And I actually think this movie is more Iranian milkshake duck uh, <laughs> because it's very much a movie about how, you know, people and institutions want this feel good story and then get incredibly annoyed at Raheem for not living up to the image that they've built up with of him with no thought but to sort of their own self-aggrandizement, right? I mean, the prison officials immediately seize on his story because they want to distract attention from a suicide at the prison. The charity um, that decides to help him decides to help him because he is sort of social media famous. And once his story starts unraveling- And they're trying people, to fundraise off of it because they have a, yeah. they have other cases that they would like to, to fund. Yes, yes. Um, and then even once things start sort of going sour, um, there's this just wrenching scene in the movie where one of the prison officials tries to create another viral video involving Rahim's son who has um, a, like a speech disability that is really overwhelming. And- you know, all of the people around him just like can't stop turning him into a consumable object, right? They can't they can't break themselves out of you know this this set of perverse incentives that they've embraced. And I thought it was really interesting to watch that, especially you know in a in a culture that is as discussed in our controversies and controversies episode is very driven by 
sort of beefs and viral stories um, and, you know, these kind of feel good heroes inflated to national and even international scale. Um, and to see how sort of repulsive all of that feels in this movie in a way that might be harder to recognize if we were looking at a story set in the U.S. Um, but, yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right, Sonny, that, you know, Raheem is an uncomfortable character. And, you know, I think Amir Jadidi, who plays him, brings a really nice physicality to the role. I mean, you know, I talk a lot about people's faces as acting tools. And, you know, he had he uses this, like, little half smile throughout most of the movie that at first makes him seem kind of endearing, but then kind of curdles on you throughout the course mm -hmm. of the movie, right? I mean, it's got these, you know, sort of two front teeth, like a sort of like a rabbit, and his <sighs> inability to get that expression off of his face, even when it's not appropriate, starts to feel sort of gross and miscalibrated. You also see, I mean, Jadidi never has Raheem stand up really straight. Um, there are these yeah. sort of outbursts of violence, but he's always sort of slumped, right? He's always, and to a certain extent, you know, initially that kind of seems like defeat, but it also- Or humility. Comes, yeah, but it ultimately comes to seem like this kind of passivity and dishonesty and just not quite togetherness. And, you know, watching this movie as a parent, the real sort of tough through line for me was- the way that he is comfortable with his son being exploited, right? I mean, the charity, you know, drags this kid up on stage and kind of forces him to make a speech. They, you know, they enlist the kid to sort of do his own good deed where, you know, he's supposed to be putting the reward money that he got from the woman who claimed the bag towards his father's debt and towards his father's release. And the moment that Rahim kind of redeems himself a little bit in the movie is the moment where he lashes out at the prison official who's trying to make this video of his kid and torture, just torturing the kid and saying that it's better if he sounds awful and awkward. And Rahim does something that's outwardly antisocial. He, and outwardly sort of unstrategic from a personal perspective, he attacks the guy to force him to delete the video. Uh, but it's the one moment where he acts assertively as a good parent in the film. Yeah, agreed. And Agreed. That's like the most the most sympathetic he is in the the entire film is in that that last moment. Yes. And it's you know, it's interesting. because It's also a moment where it's like he's not smiling. He's sort of physically upright and active. He's not even you know, it's not even like the earlier fight where he and Baram are like rolling around Baram's copy shop, kind of making fools of each other. Um, but the moment when he stands up for his child at the expense of his own freedom is sort of the moment when, and, and specifically when he resists this sort of, you know, continued milkshake ducking of his entire family um, is the moment that he kind of redeems himself. But also in a perverse way, watching this kind of reminded me of The Card Counter, just in the sense that they're both movies about people who maybe do better like in an institutional setting than in the world outside it. Um, I mean, that, that that just sort of occurred to me briefly. I don't think it's a strong parallel, but it's definitely, a you know, it's definitely a movie about a person who for the m most of the movie sort of succumbs to the worst societal impulses that are, you know, that even just brush up mildly against him. So can, um, I, can I disagree 
just a little bit, maybe not so much actually with you, Alyssa, but with Sonny, who says that the most sympathetic moment is that one at the end. Uh, I think that is a sympathetic moment. But I also think that there's something really interesting going on in this film from just from a sort of cinematic formula perspective, because in a way, this plays like a parody or an inversion of Hollywood's uh, kind of conventional protagonist requirements, because it's the rare story, rare film story in particular, in which the movie slowly drains your sympathy for the protagonist, because I actually think he's most sympathetic when he walks out of prison at the very beginning of the film. And like, of course, you immediately relate to this person. You are primed as a moviegoer to to look at this guy who looks essentially innocent, who seems sort of down on his luck, a little bit hangdog. He, the world has dealt him a bad hand in a lot of ways. You know, screenwriters talk about... Um, talk about rootability, right, is a term that they they throw around. And it's actually more important in some ways than relatability. What they want is a hero who you can root for. And when Raheem walks out of prison at the beginning of this film, he is a hero who you can root for. And slowly, 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 the movie just methodically unravels his rootability. And it's really kind of impressive uh, and yeah. something you don't see very often. And you know, you you sort of talked about both of you have have mentioned the movie's cynicism in some ways about the motivations of all of these other uh, institutions who try to use him. And I think that's totally there and totally fair. The movie very much is cynical about those motivations, but it also allows you to understand them. And the way that it unravels its hero's uh, rootability is by letting you know that other people have in some cases, um, in some cases, selfish reasons, but also good reasons and understandable reasons for doing what they are doing. And so his his solo, right, like his rationale for doing what he's doing becomes more and more horrific, maybe isn't quite the right word, but um, you, you see it in a different light because you are also beginning to see the motivations of all of those other people around him. And that's basically the reverse of the usual formula in which certainly in big, uh, popular studio films, the goal is always to have a hero who has, uh, who has a motivation that is absolutely pure while everybody around him is awful. And we can only, only, you know, root for the hero and his, you know, his, his cadre of, of friends because they are absolutely right. And the rest of the world is absolutely wrong. It's what Sonny thinks of himself but is you know isn't uh but so like you're saying i'm the hero of i'm saying movie. you're I'm the hero, hero of your movie or at least of your twitter feed sunny but this movie takes that idea and then completely inverts it i think to tremendous success well and it's really just impeccably plotted i will admit that i found the first sort of 15 20 minutes of this a little bit slow going and then once i mean once things start to unravel the thoroughness with which they unravel, the, you know, the movie unravels just every element of what's going on is really impressive, right? Like down to the question of whether the bag actually belonged to the woman who claimed it. Um, and then to the sort of unanswered question of whether whoever lost it lost it or whether it was stolen. And if so, whether Rahim's girlfriend stole it, right? Because – you know, we see early in the movie that the bag strap is either broken or cut. And the movie doesn't really return to that to that specific question, but it manages to get you to think about sort of every single 
angle yeah. of the story. Even, I mean, it would not have occurred to me, you know, the first time we saw her character, the woman who claimed the bag, might that it might not actually belong to her, right? And so this, you know, the figure at the, this, who's supposed to be giving Rahim a job and insists on sort of fact-checking his story, initially comes across as incredibly pedantic and irritating, but he plays this vital role in kind of, you know, getting our own skeptical muscles firing in a way that we might not be inclined to do. Um, yeah. It's it's just really impressively thorough without ever feeling contrived. Um, I, well, I just think it's a really impressive script. I like that opening yeah. bit just because it was of the subtle visual complexity of it. Yeah. And so he gets out of the taxi cab and sort of walks off into what looks like the desert, but he's walking towards uh, a an ancient crypt and he walks up the scaffolding of yeah. stairs and it takes him forever to do it. And the camera just lingers there. But what you realize, especially as the movie goes forward, is that that image is an image of the movie that is about to come is of him sort of yeah. walking up this increasingly precarious set of obstacles, you know, as he goes to meet the dead dead in some ways. Uh, and it's it's such a great visual image, period. But it's also a great way of, again, tweaking the usual screenwriter formula rules, because that moment at the end, at the, in that first scene, is supposed to be the moment that someone uh, states the theme to the main character. So he goes, usually you have at the end of scene one or the beginning of scene two, you have state the theme. The movie never has state the theme. It just sort of shows that to you. And then even more cleverly, it inverts it when he goes to his fiance's house and she walks down a set of stairs that is very similar, uh, but she is coming down, right? And so it's it's just this this very subtly clever uh, uh, visual film like that doesn't call attention to itself un until you start thinking about it, uh, but is is really a, a pleasure to just to watch. Yeah. And it's I mean, you even get, you know, Jadidi even brings that physicality in in sort of one of the early scenes where you see this sort of like uncommitted way that Rahim is hailing a cab. Right. I mean, he sort of waves at, you know, a passing cab and then kind of gives up for a while. <laughs> it's, you know, the, the sort of lack of follow through is there in just the littlest physical gestures um, from the beginning of the movie. It's delightfully acted. It's just, it's really wonderful. Yeah. Uh, I should mention that this is on Prime Video now if you guys want to watch it. It is not, you don't gotta, you don't have to find an art house theater specializing in Iranian cinema. It's, it's uh, on the internet to watch. Remember to turn the subtitles on at the yes. beginning because yes. uh, I actually I had, had to, to do that as well. It was, I had to turn them on manually. It was weird. Yeah, and it was the, weird that they did not start start automatically. I'm glad that I'm glad that I was not the only one. And the dub is a little it. weird and awkward, so you should definitely um, definitely subtitle it. Yeah. Uh, so what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on a hero, Peter? Thumbs up. Alyssa. Thumbs up. Uh, thumbs up for me as well. All right, that is it for this week's show. If you loved it, make sure to check out our members-only bonus episode on Peter Dinklage's Crusade Against Snow White's Seven Dwarves. Uh, make sure to tell your friends. A strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If we don't grow, we will die. If you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week. 